Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans, reporting for ConnectingVets.com. I am Navy veteran Phil Briggs, and today I'm excited to talk to one of my favorite guests, Army veteran and former leader of one of the military's most elite units known as Operational Detachment Delta, which many know as Delta Force. He's back with another high-action, thrilling novel featuring his lead character, Pike Logan, and his team of elite veteran operators as they travel the world to save the day. The book is called Dead Man's Hand. And this one connects deeply to the war in Ukraine, Vladimir Putin. It culminates with nuclear, world-ending consequences. So with that, let's say hello to Army veteran and best-selling author Brad Taylor. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Always good, man. Always good. And I still am eternally thankful for our get-together last October. I'd just yeah. come back from vacation, and the world was falling apart with Israel and Hamas and like uh, all this stuff. You gave me a master class on history. So uh, thank you for condensing two years of college history into just like a 90-minute interview. But that was awesome. Now let's switch gears, talk about this book, Dead Man's Hand. All over the globe, again, I love the scene selection. Hit me with your kind of 30,000-foot view synopsis, and then I'll dive into some of the parts that I found fascinating. I Actually, I don't ordinarily write about current events because uh, they're current. And anytime you write about current events, the real world could take a left or right turn and render your book moot. So I was doing a lot of research on uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, not because I was writing a novel, just because uh, uh, I keep on top of, top of that kind of thing. For, I still do security consulting and that kind of stuff. And uh, one of the big things is, you know, what's the red line with Soviet Union or Russia? When are they going to start launching bombs? We're all petrified of nuclear war. You know, Elon Musk is tweeting about it all the time about, you know, we're going to go into nuclear war. And so I started looking at the red lines. What would they be? What what could cause that? And in the research, I ran across this system that Russia has called a perimeter system, uh, which was invented way back in the Soviet Union days. Uh, it was in counteracting our own strategic. Reagan had strategic defense initiative, the SDI, the old Star Wars thing which basically said uh, the brag that we could knock out any missile that uh, came into our airspace, we could knock it out of the air. I mean, of course, it never came close to doing that, but that's what we bragged about. 
And that scared the heck out of Russia uh, because at the time um, during the 80s, the uh, reason we didn't go to war with each other, theoretically, the deterrence reason was mad, mutually assured destruction. If they launched the missiles and we retaliated, we'd both end up dying. If we launched first, they'd retaliate, we'd both end up dying. Well, Russia said, you know, if they think they can knock out every missile, that renders the mad deterrence theory moot because there's no repercussions. Mutually assured no longer exists. And so they kind of scared them. And they, they couldn't compete with us in space, and they made the perimeter system, which is known in the dead as the dead hand by NATO. So basically, they put sensors all over Russia, uh, seismic sensors that measure earthquake-like activity, communication sensors to see if the Kremlin was talking to their high command, and all these systems fed back into a computer. And if all the nodes were met, then the computer said, we've had a first strike, the Kremlin's destroyed, and it would then release all the remaining missiles that were there to the United States with no one at the home, which is why it was called the dead hand. Uh, and I thought, wow, that's a, that's censored story there. And then I was flabbergasted to learn they still have it. It's still in Russia now. And I'm like, you know, are you updating those with five and a quarter floppy disks? I mean, has anybody checked the batteries on that thing? <laughs> uh, and so I decided to write a story about it and I changed it to the dead man's hand. So instead of a first strike, which is how it really gets initiated, in the book, I change it to Putin. He's worried about losing his uh, power base inside Russia. And so he said, look, if I go down, if I fall out of a window, or if I drink some plutonium-laced tea, I'm gonna, the missiles are going. And there's no reason. To, he's doing it against his own people. He's saying there's no reason for you to try to get rid of me, because in so doing, you're going to get rid of Russia, because I'm going to start nuclear war. Uh, and that's basically where the plot line got started from. And again, I love talking to you about these books because I find out what nugget of truth the fictional story began with and then kind of how it goes. There's a handheld device I thought was pretty wild, like the size of a cell phone or something that this gentleman, loyal confidant, Victor, but he gives him this like detonator or this thing that will put into action the dead man's hand. And you've got the off button for the world and now you're responsible for it. Like, man, what a dramatic place to start the book. It's also uh, then jumps, of course, from Ukraine, Russia over to Sweden. And I thought that that plot line that parallels, there's these two stories in the beginning that are sort of paralleling each other. An IKEA executive tasked by his government to work as a diplomat um, unfold a little bit about kind of what we experience in Sweden and how it's connected to the Russians again. Yeah. So, well, in the real world, this is once again, was one of the risks to writing a book. I actually told my publisher there's three risks for this book. Uh, number one, the Ukraine war could be over because a flash to bang for a book takes about a year. And I said, uh, you know, while I, I'm a genius with this plot, but be aware that if the uh, Ukrainian war ends and the book is dead in the water, I said, there's, that is a risk. Number two, Sweden and Finland are trying to join NATO. Uh, and uh, I said, it's going to be, they, at that time, they said, it's both of us. We're joined at the hip. You either get both of us or you get none of us. We're both going to NATO. And no one really had a problem with Sweden inside the NATO alliance, but or, I mean, with Finland. But Turkey had a big issue with Sweden. Uh, they Sweden has some Kurdish, what Turkey calls terrorists. Swedes just, they have like green cards in Sweden. Sweden just calls them you know, immigrants. And Turkey was saying, look, you got to hand us these guys, just give them to us, but we're not going to ever vote for you in NATO. And so I told my publisher, odds are that they are going to get into NATO, but it's it's going to be close run whether it happens before publication or not. But the whole point there is that the uh, um, the diplomats trying to talk Turkey, they're trying to make a, a deal to get into sides NATO. And obviously Putin doesn't want that to happen. So he's going to try to break up this diplomat Demarche just by killing one of them. 
And again, why would Sweden, of all the NATO countries, why would they need to warm up to Turkey? Turkey had a coup uh, a few years ago, and they've conspiratorially blamed just about everybody on the planet, including some people in the United States. And a bunch of those people are in Sweden. They said, hey, we're not going to do anything until you give us all these guys we think did this coup. Sweden said these guys are just green card holders, their version of a green card, you know, in Sweden. I'm not going to turn these guys over just because you say so. And then they had some other things that happened. They, some people burned the Quran outside the Turkish embassy in Sweden, which I fully believe Putin had a hand in. And it's much broader than that, too. I mean, it goes on to um, Turkey bought. Uh, uh, they were supposed to get F-35 Joint Strike Fighters from us, the latest, you know, uh, Generation 5 fighter. Uh, before they could, we could deliver them to them, they bought S-400 anti-aircraft systems from Russia. So a Russian anti-aircraft system, which could paint our F-35s and send data back to Russia, we said, if you send the, if, if you buy that S-400, we're not giving you the F-35s. And they went ahead and bought it, and so we didn't give them the F-35s. So all these things are going around in circles, and Sweden is the focal point of it. Uh, and so Putin says, if I can get one of these guys out, it'll just delay it. His whole thing is a long-term gain, you know, is, is the long game. If I can delay this for another two years, the Ukraine war will be over by then, and they won't be joining NATO. Describe to me some of the players that are in this battle space, because, of course, we know Pike Logan at some point is going to intersect with all these people, and shooting's going to happen. Obviously, you've got Putin's in there. There's a group of partisans inside Ukraine, which are real. And they said they're sick of going tit for tat, fighting, you know, taking one town, losing a town, taking a town, losing a town. They said the only way we're going to end this war is to get rid of Putin and somebody replace him and say this war is stupid. So they're going to try to remove Putin from office. But in so doing, they're going to engender the dead man's hand, which they don't know about. So it kind of puts Pike in a dilemma, a uh, moral dilemma, like they'd, he'd more than love to help the Ukrainians get rid of Putin. But in so doing, he's going to cause nuclear war. So he's kind of like, now i got to protect Putin against my own allies because of nuclear war. Uh, and in between, there's a GRU element that's um, wanting to get rid of Putin, too. They think Putin's doing a bad thing. It's bringing Russia down, the sanctions, all this stuff's coming down. It's causing Russia to lose uh, its ability on world stage. And so they just, for Machiavellian reasons, like, we got to get rid of Putin. And they leverage the wolves to do that. They're facilitating the wolves to go through. On Putin's side, well, the good thing was that I had used Wagner in a bunch of other books. And uh, so I wasn't going to use Wagner again. I was writing about them before they were on the world stage. So I did some research and found the National Guard, um, which Putin created in 2016, which answers directly to him. Uh, it's, and it's not like our National Guard. They're not doing, you know, hurricane relief or anything like that. It's basically security for the Russian state. And every oblast in Russia, every district has part of this National Guard unit, kind of a quasi SWAT military thing. And, you know, by the way, you know, Putin's name's in the book. I kept waiting on my publisher to say, you got to change his name to Bluton. You can't say Putin. Um, and the head of the National Guard in the real world is was Putin's head of personal security. That's who he put in charge of the National Guard in 2016. And so he's a real guy, too. So I used his name and uh, they said, whoa, whoa, wait, you can't use uh, the head of National Guard. That's a real guy. And I'm like, you know, Putin's real, too. Right. But they made me change his name, but they didn't make me change Putin's name. So I ended up using the National Guard as the antagonist that's going against Pike, which really worked out well, because then, uh, like I said, the one thing that could go wrong is if Putin left office and I turn a book in and in June, Right after I turned the book in, the Wagner guys crossed from Ukraine into Russia, and they're driving to Moscow. They're going to do a coup. I was like, you got to be kidding me. These guys are doing a coup right now? And uh, Putin stopped that and pretty much crushed Wagner. They're, there's not much left of them anymore.
I wanted to ask about the Russian National Guard unit. Some brutal, brutal violence with these guys. Uh, I won't give away the scene, but just what they do to people and how they, how they conduct their operations. Is that anything that you glean from real world experience or from stories you actually heard during Delta days or? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not even stories from my time in the unit. It's, you know, there's a, there's a Chechen hit team that was running around Dubai and uh, Doha Cutter was whacking Chechens all over the place. Uh, the GRU has a, a assassination element and Putin's not, uh, it's, you know, it's anybody's guess as to whether he did this on purpose or he's just that sloppy, but they've killed people all over the world and they left enough footprints behind that we could track exactly who they were. Uh, Navalsky that's in prison right now that ran against Putin. He's, he's back in prison. They poisoned his underwear. I mean, he put on poisoned underwear, got sick, went to the hospital, almost died. Uh, and Bellingcat, which is a computer company, did a lot of research on it and pinpointed who it was, what passports they had, everything like that. And so, you know, you can talk to anybody about any Russian experts. Half will tell you Putin did it on purpose. He wanted him to figure out that it was a GRU who did it just to scare everybody else. And the other half will say, well, these guys were just too sloppy. They didn't do a good enough job. They've used Novacek poisoning in, uh, you know, the United Kingdom, uh, you know, all the way back to, I think it was 1982 when they killed somebody with a cyanide-laced umbrella jabbed in his leg. So that unit's running around. I mean, they've, they've killed people all over the world. Who's worse in the real world, do you think? The violence of some of these Russian special forces units or, you know, Islamic jihadists that we've had to encounter in Iraq and Afghanistan? War is uh world's a moral dilemma the minute you hit it. I mean, as a, as an American, you've grown up your whole life, you know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not kill. Then when you go to war, you get handed a weapon and say, go kill that guy. Right away, you, you're in a moral quandary. Uh, it's just, it's not black and white, it's completely gray. And the more you do delve into it, the more it becomes like Lord of the Flies. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say either side's worse. I'd say without command and control, without uh, uh, somebody trying to keep you on the straight and narrow, Wagner themselves, in Ukraine, um, they had a bunch of guys who deserted from Wagner. They captured them and they killed them by with a sledgehammer. They tied a rock to their head and used a sledgehammer and bashed their head in and put it on video and sent it out. Here's what happens if you desert. This isn't even the enemy. These are people that deserted from Wagner and they caught again. So, I mean, the human condition is prone to doing horrific acts. And if there's not any kind of stopping of it, there's not any moral compass that's saying stop this is not right in fact that's why the geneva conventions were actually invented it was after the horrors of world war one it was kind of like we got to set some rules on this stuff and sadly bad guys rarely play by any rules so uh yeah. well, i mean you go the japanese were horrific in world war ii it's just that's just what happens in war i wouldn't say it's any you couldn't parse it to you know are the russians worse than the japanese who are worse than the islamic terrorists i mean they're all human and they all just evolved into some subhuman thing yeah amen uh, let's talk about something a little uh, lighter, and uh, let's go to the beautiful locations. I love hearing the vivid descriptions of where they are at. I've never been to Sweden, but I know that you get to travel quite extensively as you do research, uh, which makes me really want to switch places with you sometimes, because I would <laughs> love to just go travel the world, finding the best gelato, the best drinks, the best lunch spots, the best cafes. But you really describe Sweden in a very cool way, and there's two kind of cities this is unfolding in and we've got stockholm and then we've got a copenhagen uh let's start with stockholm just kind of describe sort of some of the things we'll experience actually i didn't um you know i always do want to get on the ground but i didn't want to get shot at in ukraine and i certainly wasn't going to go to russia 
after I wrote about the Wagner guys in previous books, I'd be in jail like anybody else over there. So we looked around and decided to go to, you know, Copenhagen, Sweden, Finland, and Estonia. Uh, and that's where we kind of loop through that stuff. And it starts out in Sweden. There's old uh, old town. There's Gamlestan, which is where their old kingdom started from. It's this little island right there in Stockholm, uh, which is super cool. Everything in there was uh, it's obviously built before the time of cars, so you can't even drive. It's all pedestrian, cobblestone streets and everything like that. And, I, you know, half that stuff I wasn't even planning on using, but I don't even know what I'm looking for until I get on the ground. In Sweden, I wanted to do the uh, rune stones because that's I always have to have some kind of cover reason for Pike to be there. And I thought that would be the greatest thing ever to go see these rune stones. And there wasn't much to them. So I had to kind of reevaluate. I mean, it's just like a giant tombstone out in the middle of a farmer's field. And that's it. But we were walking around Gamlestan and uh, Lane, my wife, said that uh, there's a sign outside saying karaoke. Hey, we're going to do some karaoke. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. You're going to do karaoke in Sweden? I mean, you don't even have have English songs. And we went down to this bar. Uh, it had a, the upstairs was a, a, a Irish bar showing a soccer game, huge TVs everywhere. And down below in the basements where they were doing the karaoke, in the basement was like something out of Pirates in the Caribbean. It was that old, you know, the 1600s. Had all these old stone pillars. And I said, man, this is super cool. So I, I you know, took a bunch of pictures, took a bunch of notes, uh, and that ended up in the book. But I wouldn't even have known it existed if I hadn't gone there. Very cool. And I won't spoil it, but when you read the book, like uh, uh, several people die yeah. in the vicinity of this place you just described. And yet when you were there, uh, you know, it's a karaoke party somewhere and it's a, a, you know, fans watching soccer on the upstairs. Well, you know, when, when he's he's walking to that place and he runs into a bunch of soccer fans that rough him up a little bit and push him around, you know, that yeah. actually happened. Well, we thought it was a riot. We hear all the screaming and shouting, beer bottles being broken. And we were there during the elections, the Swedish elections. And so we're like, oh, there's some kind of riot going on. So we went running down there to see what it was. And it was a bunch of soccer fans on each side of the street, one yelling at the other. And it was all good natured. They weren't really doing anything wrong. But, boy, were they liquored up. And they were flinging bottles and everything. And they're laughing and screaming. I was like, you got to be kidding me. Look at these guys. Is it a political insurrection? No, just opposing <laughs> sports fans. <laughs> That's exactly breaking what bottles. it was. <laughs> I'm glad to see some things are sort of universal. Um, Oh, this was a cool location in uh, Copenhagen, Copenhagen. Yeah. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But, uh, <laughs> Me yeah, <either>. uh, <laughs> but in Copenhagen, uh, you describe a former military base taken over by hippies featuring a street called Pusher Street where they yeah. openly sell drugs of all kinds. Talk about this town. Yeah, that was that's a true place. Now, this is one of the ones, this is a 50% side that I knew it existed. And I was just going to go check it out and see if I could use it. I ended up using it because what better place to infiltrate a bunch of Russians then they're not checking any passports inside this place. And it's called uh, Christiana. And, and you're right. It was in the 70s. Uh, the uh, uh, Copenhagen abandoned this army base. The base is still there. It's just a bunch of empty barracks and stuff. There's no longer soldiers there. Uh, and these hippies rolled in and said, we're calling this the free state of Christiana. And we don't belong to any country. And this is our place. And they've never left. They've been there ever since. They've, there's been a lot of times when they tried to, you know, to a victim. And everybody raises up and goes on their high horse. Uh, and they have their own city council and they have all this other stuff, but they're, you go in there and it's just like watching a bunch of stray cats laying around. There's graffiti everywhere. Everybody's barefoot and filthy. And it's just, then there's Pusher Street, which is, they just used to sell all kinds of drugs on Pusher Street. And once a week, once every two weeks or so, the police will raid the place and, um, they'll see them coming. They wrap up all their drugs and run out. Nothing ever happens. The police did what they thought they needed to do. Everybody calmed down. 
And as long as there's no violence inside Christiana, then the Copenhagen officials kind of just hands off on the whole thing. They're like, look, as long as you maintain the peace over there. They had some troubles in the 80s where really hard drugs came in and bikers were in there and there was a lot of violence in there. And so they said, this is it. We're getting rid of Christiana. And the people in Christiana said, no, 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 let us clean up our own mess. And they kicked out all the bikers and all this kind of stuff and cleaned it up. And so they let them stay there. And so to this day, Sweden doesn't enforce any jurisdiction over this town, and you can just walk down that street and buy weed? They just look the other way. Technically, it still is an army base. I mean, technically, it's owned by the government. And technically, they could kick them out at any time. They just never have. And uh, they have, I mean, it's a functioning, it's just kind of weird. They, like, when we were there, there's there was a bike shop there. You get your bike prepared. And it really is a commune where everybody contributes something to that society. And uh, that, you know, they don't have any taxes or anything, but it's your turn to fix the pump and plumbers that know how to do stuff and like smoking pot. They'll go live there. You know, I, I can fix your toilet. That's my what I'm adding to this. There's kitchens there and all kinds of stuff. And it's just full of graffiti. Um, and it's, you know, I guess it's some kind of utopia. I, I looked to me like they were all just on the ragged edge of living. Uh, but as you're walking through there, you'll see somebody looking at you and you're looking at him. And you're like, that guy's a tourist just like me. He's you know, he's coming here to look at the zoo. He's coming here to look at the zoo. I love it. And it's actually the sentiment you hear in Brad's voice that comes right through the character, Pike Logan. He is of the same opinion that this is a zoo. Why are we even here? This place smells. Everybody needs deodorant and then not be so stoned. Again, blood, splatter, murders, all kinds of fighting, cool, cool things go down. I don't want to get too deep into the details of the book per se, but I did... I did write this note down while I was reading that part of the book. Have you ever seen a news story about, I don't know, a killing in Kathmandu or some sort of attack in Angola and realized that it is not what we see in the news, an attack, a murder, a car accident, a plane crash, a helicopter crash, that it is actually the remnants of an Intel op gone bad. I, I mean, there's a lot of times I've seen some, some mishap that occurred, but it's, it's almost impossible to t- to really tell. I mean, there's there's enough people in the world that'll claim a conspiracy theory for anything. You know, this guy, you know, Vince Foster, for instance, he commits suicide. Well, Hillary had him killed in a black op from the deep state. So it's really hard to say. When but when the evidence starts coming out, like I mentioned, the Chechens in Dubai and in uh, um, Doha, Qatar, they were just brazenly killing Chechens. So when you've got a bunch of Chechens end up dead in the street with a bullet not through poison or anything, okay, there's something going on there. Somebody is trying to get rid of these guys. The Mossad's pretty good at it. Inside uh, Dubai uh, Hotel there, they killed the head of Hamas in um, 2000s. I can't remember exactly when it was. And they went in and had all kinds of different passports, and Dubai, within 24 hours, figured out the Mossad had done it, knew all their names. They were using passports from Australia, from Canada, all these other places. Uh, and they had, you know, CCTV footage of them entering, putting on wigs, leaving a bathroom, going to the guy's hotel room. The next day, the guy's found dead. Well, yeah, OK, that's that's an intelligence operation there. And I'm glad you brought up the Israelis because they factor into this, too, and sort of a flashback to a character from books, you know, several, several books ago. But uh, there's an Israeli character, lovely woman named Shoshana, and she's an intelligence operator, uh, but just scares the Jesus out of the team. She's just really just kind of She's unusual. A <laughs> yeah, a very unusual person, very intense 
person, I gather. And this woman is an Israeli assassin. But uh, let, let's just start there. Tell me a little bit about how Israel sort of factors into the story, but then maybe open up on how the Mossad, that Israeli intelligence group, uh, is really just lights out one of the best in the world. Yeah, so I did actually... So Shoshana comes back once every two or three books, and it's not I, – I wish I had some kind of grand plan, like, you know, three books from now I'm going to bring her back, and then I'll skip a book or whatever. It's really what happens is just is there – does it flow? And in this case, in the real world, the Mossad, uh, um, they wanted to kill some Iranian uh, nuclear scientists, and they've been killing them. They've had hired people to do it, and it's gotten real hard to kill the Iranian scientists. They put a lot of security up. So they managed to infiltrate piece by piece a machine gun, put the thing together, and then controlled it with artificial intelligence from outside of Israel using satellites. And they killed the Iranian scientists, came around with all the security, and this truck was supposedly broken down on the side of the road, but really in the bed it had this weapon system. And um, they fired it from you know outside the country, killed the scientist, and then they blew up the weapon system. They wanted to leave no trace of how it had happened. And the first reports that came out of that from Iran were, you know, as hordes of assassins came over the hill and all this. Uh, and then they found the pieces of the machine gun because they didn't actually understand how it happened. They were like, how in the world did they get in here? And they found the machine gun, put it together. It turns out the Israelis had built this machine gun. Well, they're looking at using the GRU's looking at using this machine gun against Putin. Hey, that's a pretty cool idea. We can infiltrate that into Russia, shoot him in his train, that kind of thing. And so they're, they've contacted what they think is a defense contractor in Israel to purchase this machine gun. The Mossad gets wind of the fact that these Russians are trying to buy this machine gun. And so they send in Shoshana as a Mossad operative to pretend like she's working for a company selling this machine gun, when really she's just trying to figure out from the Mossad's perspective, what's going on here? What are these guys really trying to do? Hmm. They smuggled that weapon system in piece by piece into Iran. One of the, yeah. I'm sure that's one of the most difficult countries to get screened going in too. Uh, wow. That's, that's yeah, it's pretty that. good technology. It's, it was pretty impressive hit. I'll tell you that. So that part is real. How about the American Vulcan machine gun? Just real quick. Is that, is, is that something we actually own or is that a oh, piece yeah. of machinery that we have? Yeah. 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 You see those everywhere. Actually, they mount them all over the place. We've got them on, you know, actually I've seen them mounted on Humvees for special operations forces, but they're, they're Gatlin guns and helicopters have them. The Spectre gunship, AC-130, it's got a bunch of them. Uh, and they fire bazillions of rounds a second. What they used to brag about when they first invented all this was if you put a, took a football field and then blew up a balloon and put a balloon a foot apart all the way across the field from one end of the end zone to the other, in one pass, they could pop every balloon. So it, it puts out some rounds. Wow. <laughs> what, what else did I want to ask about under Tradecraft? Uh, oh, okay. Growler cell phone tracker. I thought that was a really cool piece of technology that they talked about using. Um, real? Yeah. Well, there's no such thing as a growler as far as I know, but there certainly could be. Um, it's based on, uh, uh, MZ, uh, grabber. Basically all that happens is when your cell's sitting here in your car and you're walking down the street, it's continually trying to talk to a tower. It's pings off a tower, pings off a tower. When he gets a stronger signal from the next tower, it jumps from one tower to the next tower. And all the MC grabber does is pretend like it's a tower and it locks your phone. Your phone thinks it's talking to a tower. Unbeknownst to you, it's in your pocket. And instead of talking to a tower, it's talking to this machine. This machine is now trying to is geolocating where that phone is. If you went to a mall and turned on an MC grabber, all the hundreds of people around there, every one of their cell phones would say, that's the closest tower. 
and it would lock into it. Once you've got the phone locked, you're talking to the phone. So you could do just about anything. You can manipulate the phone. You could send in malware. Pegasus software that, once again, is invented by Israel. Turn on the camera. Turn on the cell phone. I mean, turn on the uh, microphone. Scroll through their contacts. I mean, whatever you want to do once you've got that phone in your possession. See, I told you, I, this is just the spy stuff I learned from these books I absolutely love geeking out about. Uh, one last one I wanted to kind of look at, and that is um, tracking devices that work on a sense of smell. Tell me about the ticks that are used in the book, yeah. and then um, is it real? The ticks I did take some liberty on. So they had, uh, uh, once again, it was Israel doing it. They, um, they were trying to develop software or trying to develop the capability for a mechanical device that worked like a rescue dog. So the, the biggest, the dogs are really good for search and rescue and crush buildings and things like that. But the bad downside of a dog is he can only work so long. He gets hot. He needs water, needs food, that kind of thing. Uh, and so they were developing a system that where the thing could pick up the scent of a human being, uh, just like a dog could. So that was one half of the tick. The other half was they were, uh, now this is us. DARPA was developing nano drones, which are super, super, super small drones. Uh, that can run around and do stuff that you wouldn't even be able to see the thing. And they look about the size of a tick. And so what I did was I kind of just combined the two. So that technology doesn't exist yet. But in my book, I combined the two. Oh, so cool. Suffice to say, in one rather tense scene, the bad guys are near Pike Logan and his team, and they drop these things on the ground, and they're able to, like, crawl over to the bad guy and embed in his fabric. Um you know, they're able to get into the fabric of the clothing. And then, of course, boom, now you've got tracking on a person, microscopic almost. I mean, not, uh, just tiny little things that could almost look like pocket lint, but yeah. yet they're transmitting signal. Uh, what a trip. Um, <laughs> the other tradecraft things I always find fascinating about the book is, is how these people are, especially Pike and his team, how they're able to like track their people and how the bad guys are also able to track the victims, all this comes from your experience with the military, but like, what are the general basics of surveilling an area and define kind of why the word box is used so often? Basically, I mean, surveillance is just like you'd see in the movies. Uh, you're trying to follow somebody and you don't want them knowing you're following them. That's basically what surveillance is. And there's two types. There's mobile and static surveillance. So if you had static surveillance, if you knew this guy walked down this route every day, then you could post somebody on a park bench, and when you walk by, you could just signal, he's here, he's on track, he's here, he's on track. Mobile surveillance is you don't know where the guy's going, so now you have to follow him. Uh, and there, it's one of the yin and the yang of each other. So counter surveillance is basically if I see the same person over time and distance, uh, and I suspect I'm being followed, if I see the same person over time and distance, then I can, I can say that guy's following me. Now you have to be, you have to design a route where the time and distance makes sense. In other words, if I got on an airplane with somebody in Charleston and then I got off in Los Angeles and holy moly, that guy's still there. Yeah, that's a lot of time and distance, but he just happened to be on the plane with me. So you need to make it him do something that would be unlike he would do, which is usually you're doing turns. So you go up a block, take a right, go up a block, take a left, go up a block, take a right. And if somebody follows you doing that same thing and you see him over time and distance, then you're probably being followed. The counter to that is obviously you want to swap the guys out that are following the guy. So it's a different person each time. Uh, and you create a box around him so he can just kind of a bubble around him that he can't get out without running into one of your guys. But you still got surveillance on him without him. You're not literally walking down the street with him. And they both have their pros and cons. It depends on the mission you've got. If you just want to isolate this guy and make sure he's 
like if I'm going to break into his house and all I want to know is he's not coming back to the house and I can put a real loose box around him. In fact, if he breaks the box and I call the guys robbing the house and say, get out. But that doesn't work if this guy's going to meet somebody. Now you need to tighten it up because you've got to see the meeting. You've got to hear the meeting or whatever. And that requires closer surveillance. So it's not, you know, it's not black magic. It's just, and I, you know, when I'm designing those scenes, I think in my head that, well, he'd never do this. Actually, what I think is if one of my friends reads this, they're going to make fun of me. So I have to change it to make sure I'm doing something that's accurate. Otherwise, I'll get a, I'll get a, a nasty gram. Yeah, but that's why the surveillance scenes are so fascinating, because you really do read along with Pike and his team. And it just sounds so like I can envision people actually doing what they're doing, going to the places they're going, eating, drinking, surveilling the way they're doing it. Pretty rad, man. Um I also took away, there's two parts to every cover. There's two real essential ingredients to that. Unpack the part about a believable cover. And this, once again, this sounds like top secret James Bond stuff, but it's, it's nothing more than you did in high school when you lied to your parents. So you've got, you've got a cover for status and a cover for action. Your cover for status is why are you at the area you're in? Uh, why are you in Bogota, Colombia? Well, I'm a computer salesman. That's my cover for status. Your cover for action is when you're doing something very specific. You want to get a picture of the the harbor. Why are you at the harbor? So if somebody picks you up, you'd say, you know, what? Are you, who are you? Oh, I'm a computer salesman. Here's my badge for the convention I was in. I'm just down here. Okay, the, the convention's a mile away. Why are you out here in the harbor? Oh, well, I was thinking about buying a sailboat, and I'm talking to this guy over here. That's your cover for action. And, so, you know, you're in high school. It's like, Mom, I'm going to spend a night with my friend. Uh, there's your cover for status. I'm going to be with my friend. And then if you get caught not being at your friend's house, you have a cover for action. We decided to go get ice cream. That's where we're over here. (laughs) All of which were stories my parents never would have believed. But (laughs) cover for action and cover for status. Very cool. I love the look into the clandestine world through these books. And I love how you're able to do it so skillfully. Um, I suppose my last question here is just about, again, kind of looking into the real world. But as Pike Logan and his team are tracking these two groups set on killing each other, Russians and Ukrainians set on killing Vladimir Putin, and the end game involving the threat of nuclear war, which could destroy the entire world, and only Pike and his team can save the day at some point in this book. We flash back and forth to a lot of conversations between Pike, the president, Hannister, the CIA director, and you know, you hear about all these sit reps being submitted and the task force in DC is worried that things might be getting out of hand halfway across the planet. And can we control this task force? Can we control these special operators? Is the mission getting too deep? Is it going to cause too much death? Is it too much risk? And I got the thinking about just the way we are in America and the way the CIA and the special operations community works in its relationship with the president. I can't think, including the last five presidents of any president, I feel that would like really be able to like break from one lunch meeting and then hurry up and sit down at the desk and then be briefed by the CIA director and really understand what's going on. President Hannister seems to be able to have that ability. Have we had one that's been good at this since George Bush senior? Because he's about the only president I could come up with given his short time with the CIA. He's about the only president I could imagine could understand the scope and the scale of these meetings. Yeah, I think that, uh, um, like I said, it's not black magic. So 
while the president may not understand all the intricacies that goes on with a surveillance operation, he's going to understand the difference between risk and reward. Uh, and if the advisors are giving him adequate uh, feedback on what's, what is the risk here, what do we do to gain here, what's the national imperative here, those are all trade-offs. And I think, yeah, any, any you know, if you, if you, once you've dealt in that world for just a little bit, you can figure it out. Now, they're not going to know everything on the ground. For instance, you know, apocryphally, I'm not sure if it's true or not, Jimmy Carter asked Beckwith when we were going to do uh, uh, Eagle Claw when we're rescuing the hostages in Tehran, he said, I want you to go in there and make sure you shoot everybody in the leg. Uh, and Beckwith, the commander of Delta at the time, said, no, sir, we're going in and shooting them all in the head. We are not going to try to disable anybody. We're going in there to kill them. Now, he didn't understand the tactical intricacies, but he certainly understood the risk versus reward of rescuing the hostages. So it's, they don't need to know everything. And there's a, there's always a, um, a yin and a yang, a quid pulling back and forth over how much do you delegate to the guy on the ground versus how much needs to be held at the command level. Um, because the guy on the ground, he knows everything that's going on, but he does not necessarily know the, the greater scheme of things. And he may have be doing something wrong that if somebody at a higher command could look at it and say, whoa, 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 stop what you're doing. Uh, I mean, a good example is the Wrath of God operations that Israel did after the 72 Munich massacre at the Olympics. They did a Wrath of God, went around the world killing all of the terrorists who had killed the uh, Olympic athletes in Munich. Well, they went after one guy in um, Norway, were chasing him around. They thought he was the Red Prince, the architect of the whole thing. Uh, and at the same time, they used to, it had to get permission from the prime minister to execute the hit. For each one, they reserved the right, don't you pull the trigger until I tell you to pull the trigger. And at the time that uh, uh, they found this guy and said, we've got, you know, a window where we can get him, we need to have an answer now. There was also a terrorist attack that was occurring in Israel. There was a plane flying to Tel Aviv that they believed was going to crash into Tel Aviv. And so that's what the prime minister was focused on. And so without any oversight, he just said, okay, if they think they've got him, go get him. I got to worry about this. Well, those guys went out and killed a waiter from Morocco and didn't get the right guy, which caused an international incident. Israel was a pariah on the world stage, kicked out of all these embassies, uh, all because somebody didn't look closely enough at what those guys on the ground are looking at. Because the uh, tactical application of force is something they're expert at, but the geopolitical ramifications for what the head of state, that's what they're there for. So there is a, a pull on both sides, you know, to get a successful mission done versus what are going to be the disaster if this is wrong. Hmm. In a day in politics, though, where it just seems like so many politicians are trying to say the crazy thing to get noticed or they're talking the toughest because they because they want to seem like the big tough guy. Isn't there a danger with letting certainly on a presidential level, somebody with limited knowledge of who these countries even are, letting them be read in on serious CIA activity? But isn't there also even like a danger on the more junior level, like the committee assignments, the House Intel Committee? Shouldn't some of our leaders have to take like, I don't know, like a geography test or a or, or a or a global cultural awareness test to understand who's who on planet Earth before they get assigned to some committee rather than putting in the loudest dog barker who had the most insane campaign and won over the masses to get their elected appointment? I mean, it just seems like we're putting some people in the driver's seat of these tactical ops that couldn't find some of these countries on a map with both hands. Yeah, well, the number one, Congress, Congress has oversight, but they don't have command and control. There's none of the, the House Intelligence Committee or the Senate Intelligence Committee. They're not command and control anything. They're just providing oversight. Um, I mean, you could get egg on your face and get chastised for doing something. But when a president provides a finding to Congress, he's providing a finding uh, by law. He has to present a finding. But also by law, it doesn't matter. Congress can't say no. 
I mean, if he presents his finding and says, I, my finding is I'm going to kill everybody who uh, hates Hershey's Kisses in the country of Guatemala. And Congress can say, what in the hell are you doing that for? That's crazy. Doesn't matter. He can do it. I presented my finding. Here I go. And the finding's got to dictate, uh, number one, it's got to be a covert action, which has its own definition in the United States Code, which is not the newspaper's definition. There's a specific thing that falls in covert action. Uh, number two, it's got to delineate the start point, end point, and the, the gains they're trying to get. And if the end point is years long, then there's got to be updates. You've got to provide. No president wants to be standing there. If things go bad and the covert action gets exposed to the light of day and it's a debacle, no president wants to sit there with the entire House and, and Senate Intelligence Committee saying, we told him not to, and him saying, I did it. So it is pretty powerful if the Congress were to say, we think this is ridiculous, you shouldn't be doing this. But generally, the people that go in the House Intelligence Committees and the Senate Intelligence Committees are usually more sane people. They don't put, you know, firebrands who got elected just for throwing tomatoes into that. So most of the time, they're veterans. They've got uh, some, you know, a lot of time they're, they're CIA analysts, things like that. They had something to do in their previous career, and they take the job seriously. They don't just run around barking. I will say that I, it concerns me when they start giving briefings for everything to everybody. You know, get rid right on, come down the skiff, act like the skiff. If you walk into the skiff, all of a sudden, magically, nobody's going to spill the beans. Just because you went into a skiff doesn't mean that guy's not going to walk out and tell everybody what's going on. And a lot of times we have leaks that occur. It's precisely because some senator's aides, you know, he's got 15 aides in a room, and that aide tells a friend of his because he thinks he's cool because he's read on to something, and then that friend tells somebody, and he gets in a newspaper. Yeah, and I can see how that works because, yeah, that aide ends up going for beers over at Kelly's Irish Times over yeah. there, blocks from the U.S. Capitol. Somebody's drinking. Next thing you know, somebody's a journo sitting three bar stools down, finds its way out. Uh, crazy. I think I asked all that to set up the fact that, like, are you concerned with how some politicians from heavyweight on down to just, you know, freshmen are talking about our relationship with Iran needing to go after those that are responsible and funding some of the terrorism that we see going on around the world, everywhere from the Houthis to Katab Hezbollah, which I'm proud to say I knew the term because of our last <laughs> interview in October. Thank you very yeah. much, Colonel Brad Taylor. Does that concern you when you hear about everyone from Senator Lindsey Graham to presidential candidates saying, we need to go in there and take them on? Yeah, the a lot of it, it is concerning to me that people want to say, it used to be politics ended at the, at the shore. You know, what happened overseas, you didn't do partisan politics about it. Nowadays, everything's a punching bag, to include the military. Military used to be above the fray. Now the military is part of it. It's, you know, I can beat up on the military for whatever. If it scores me political points, then I'm going to make fun of the military. Uh, and that's disappointing to me. It really is. And it does concern me. These guys, they nobody's really thought through. I actually wrote a couple of blogs about what would happen if we attacked Iran. And this was four years ago. Iran's got a lot more firepower than any country we've attacked recently, uh, much more than Afghanistan, much more than Iraq. They've got uh, people all over the place. As we're seeing right now, their axis of resistance, as they call it. Uh, they can manage a bunch of stuff. And also cyber is a big one. Iran's really big into cyber. We haven't seen that yet. But if they they want to unleash the whole Penelope of everything they have, they, it would be trouble. And I don't know what mm -hmm. you get when you just, you know, we're going to blow this place up. They, they, it, we always look at, uh, even in counter-leadership targeting itself, like I'm, the whole book is about counter-leadership targeting. And, you know, a rational actor will do a counter-leadership strike for some kind of future goals. Uh, and you'll do it for two reasons. You'll do it for dislocation, where you're trying to gain some leverage in the fight itself. 
Like we killed Yamamoto in World War II. He was the architect of Pearl Harbor. Genius naval guy. We got rid of him, found out where he was flying and took him out. Uh, or you'll do it for replacement where the guy that's coming in is going to alter the whole thing. Um, and like once again, World War II, replacement would be the German high command saying we got to get rid of Hitler. He's going to burn Germany to the ground. If we get rid of him, then we can sue for peace. And that's the book is about a replacement strategy. But we usually we talk about regime change or something like that. We don't thoroughly think through the second and third order effects in the recent history. Be Libya is a good example. Gaddafi springs up. I mean, he's a bad guy. He's an evil person. He's a despot. Everything you want to say, dictator. Arab Spring rolls in here and we say, oh, we're going to get rid of Gaddafi. What's the second and third order effect of that? What are we doing here? Well, the second order effect is we got Benghazi, a murder ambassador, burned down the consulate, burned down the annex. We fled the country, pulled the flag down. Third order effect was terrorists ransacked all the armories that Gaddafi had under lock and key. Those weapons spread out there. The weapons that were used to kill the four special forces soldiers in Niger a few years ago came from armories that Gaddafi used to have under lock and key. So there's always a second and third order effect, and the enemy always has a vote. So we sit there and say, we're going to drop a bomb on an oil refinery in Iran, and they're going to cower in fear, and that'll be the end of it. No, they're going to get a vote. You better be looking very hard at what that vote could be. And are you willing to accept the ramifications of that vote and then escalate further if necessary? And if all those are met, then by all means, do it. But don't do it and then go, holy moly, I never thought that was going to happen because you didn't look at it. That almost sounds to me like your advice for any of these firebrand politicians out there spouting all this tough talk against Iran. And we need to go in there and bomb it till it glows green. Yeah, well, it's funny they say that now when... uh I mean, I don't do politics in the books, but they're like, you know, current administration, a bunch of cowards. They're not blowing up Iran. Well, we've had a bunch of drone strikes hit our uh, bases. When we killed Soleimani, uh, which was a dislocation strategy, modern day counter leadership strike for you. Little history there. We killed Soleimani, the commander of the Quds Force. Iran launched ballistic missiles from their soil, 22 of them into Al-Assad Air Base. And if we hadn't evacuated the base, they'd have probably killed 100 people. That's, I mean, directly from Iran. And we did nothing. They did it, and we just said, okay, we're done now. Iran blew a drone out of the air in international waters. We did nothing. And that was the previous administration, so that's okay. Current administration, he's a damn coward. And I'm not saying either one's right or wrong. I'm just saying when you start doing this partisan screaming and yelling, when you don't have a leg to stand on, it's just kind of aggravating. Yeah, and that's exactly why I wanted to get your take on that, because as this book concluded, um, it just left me thinking about the real-world implications, kind of how some of these seeds of real-world stuff are woven so cleverly into this book, but at the same time, how frustrated I am by seeing what's going on in the real world versus a President Hannister and a Pike Logan in this book that seem to have a respectful rapport for each other's knowledge base. And they seem to, although they're clashing on some hands, the president really seems dialed in here, seems to know what's going on geopolitically, globally. And I just wished everything worked as fluidly and as efficiently as it does <laughs> in a Pike Logan book. But Brad Taylor, that's why they call it fiction. The book is Dead Man's Hand. Brad Taylor, former Delta Force, best-selling author. Thank you, man. I just, I just hope I didn't chew your ear off too much or geek out too much on tradecraft, but absolutely love what you've put together with this book. If I want more information on Brad Taylor, learning about the behind the scenes that makes these books, uh, where do I go? Uh, the easiest thing, just go to my website at bradtaylorbooks.com. 
and they can read an excerpt of any of my books on there. Get a flavor for the writing. Keep them coming. I can't wait to hear more from Pike, Jennifer, Knuckles, and I uh, loved uh, seeing Shoshana appear in this one. Dead Man's Hand. Get it everywhere you get books. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.